The reading this morning is from the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. So here's a a factor, a, a descriptor of our culture. We all, to some degree or another, have bought into this idea of meritocracy, If that word is new to you, a meritocracy is the belief that success and wealth and political power come from our talents and our efforts and our achievement rather than just being born with a certain into a certain social class or being born into a particular socioeconomic class. This is really the American dream. With enough hard work, you can rise through the social ranks and you can achieve your goals and dreams. So we trumpet, we value, we put forward effort, work, performance. And in many ways, this plays right into one of the the driving factors of who we are as human beings, the drive to perform. Like We want to be successful. We would want to be wealthy. We we want power. We want to achieve. We want to have a a measure of control. We want recognition. We, We want to be accepted by other people. We want meaning. We want purpose. And so we perform to get all of that. We work and we work and we work. We seek these things through our merits and our performance. And when it comes to religion, when it comes to religious practice, The way that meritocracy is often framed is through the word legalism. Maybe you guys have heard this term before, legalism. The the idea that I have to work, I have to perform in order to get God's favor. Now, there's various layers and various nuances to legalism, but I want to give you two categories for legalism that you might be familiar with. The first is what I want to call wage legalism. Wage legalism is this that I earn salvation or I earn a blessing from God as a wage. Just like you have a job and you have a particular wage, you're under contract. Like if I work and I do this amount of work, I get paid this amount. So there's this direct, I earn this. And some people live their life this way where they believe that there's sort of this contractual uh, relationship between God and God is obligated to reward you if you perform in a certain way. 
But another form of legalism that I think is in some ways even more prevalent is what we call worth legalism. Worth legalism. So what this says is that salvation from God or blessing from God is in many ways a gift. I recognize I'm not perfect, and so I have to rely to some degree on the grace of God, but I have to live in such a way to be worthy of that. Think of it this way. Parents, let's say you want to buy your teenager a new car. Are you more likely to give that gift to your son or daughter if they are responsible and well-behaved or if they're reckless? More than likely, if they are responsible and well-behaved, you would say, hey, they're worthy of this gift. It's still a gift. They don't have the means to purchase this on their own, but they've lived in such a way that they're worthy of the gift versus, oh, this person isn't worthy at all. See the difference? This is a little more nuanced because we still recognize we're under grace and we need God to bestow favor on us, but we think we have to live in such a way that God would say, oh yeah, that person's worthy of my, of my blessing, of my gift. That is worth legalism. And so obviously legalism doesn't exist just in a meritocracy, even in cultures where there's a fixed class structure, where there's more of a hierarchical structure that people are fit into. Oftentimes religion is a way out of that. Religion is sort of that one space where I can perform and get the blessing of God regardless of the social class I've been been born into. Now, for those of you that wouldn't consider yourself religious— or maybe even a Christian, you're not any less legalistic. Because you too believe that if you behave and perform in a certain way, you will earn certain benefits, certain merits. If you behave and perform in a certain way, you'll earn acceptance from friends and family or or coworkers or people that you live with. If you behave and you perform in a certain way, whatever system you've given yourself to, whatever system you believe is going to bring you happiness or fix what is broken in you and in our world, if you do what you need to do in that system, then benefit will come your way. And so you perform too. We're all part of this, whether we're religious or not. Now, some of you in the room might go, well, look, I don't even follow rules. I don't, I don't worry about legalism because I just, no. All I'm doing is freedom, baby. All I have is freedom. Hey, guess what? You're performing too. Because you believe that you have to pursue a certain measure of freedom. You have to live with certain restraints thrown off in order to achieve happiness. That's a rule. That's performing. It's inescapable. We are driven to perform one way or another. Now, here's something about life that we have to come to grips with. To some degree... This is good. To some degree, this, this is good that we would care about performing and that we would care about living our lives in a certain way. Look, God has ordered his world in a particular way. He has given a moral order to our world, meaning there is good and evil, right and wrong. And we are called to follow after good and to reject evil. We are called to perform in a righteous way. Also, God has ordered our world so that if you work hard, there is benefits. That, that, that rules and structures and discipline are actually good. They bring a sense of safety to our world. They, they bring a sense of direction. They, they order what would, own, would be otherwise chaos. So, so we can recognize, look, performing and behaving in a particular way is not all bad. It, it's not always this negative thing. However, here's the problem. 
sin. Sin has entered the picture. All the way back in Genesis 3, we read when Adam and Eve and thereby the rest of humanity decide, hey, we're going to go it alone, God. Well, we don't need you to tell us what is good and evil. We don't need you to tell us what is actually meaningful and purposeful in life. We don't need you to tell us how we ought to live. We're going to construct these things on our own. So we define good and evil on our own. We decide what is going to be meaning and purpose. We decide what we're going to do with our lives. We're going to, we decide how to order and how to rule. Ever since that point, our natural disposition has been rebellious. We, we've decided, God, don't tell us what to do. And that has fundamentally altered the way we perform, the way we think about performance. So for, on the religious side, morality and religious behavior becomes this. God, I am going to do this so you give me what I want. God, I'm going to perform in a particular way so that you are obligated to give me what I want. So it's manipulation. It's earning and manipulation. And so morality doesn't become about glorifying God and being obedient to him. It becomes, I'm going to manipulate you. Or we perform to be acceptable. I'm going to jump through the hoops that I need to so people will like me, people will love me, so I can belong to a particular group. Again, manipulation, selfishness, pride. Or we make demands of others. Hey, you need to perform this way if I'm going to accept you. If you want to be a part of this group, here's what you need to do. And so we have turned performance and good and evil and rules on its head. Our problem with performance is a sin problem. And look, Christians in the room, we fall into this far more often than we want to admit. Like even when we acknowledge that salvation is by grace through faith, even when we believe in Christ, because our hearts are still prone to sin, we're still prone to fall into a performance mentality. This is what we see in verses 11 through 14. No less a disciple of Jesus, no less a leader in the church than the apostle Peter falls back into a pattern of performance. This is what verses 11 through 14 tell us. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what happened? Why did Peter do this? Well, we're not given a lot of information, but here's what we know. Between these men from James, so this is the Apostle James, that came down from Jerusalem, and the circumcision party, whoever these guys were, Peter was afraid of them. Peter was afraid that he was going to be critiqued and criticized and attacked by these Jewish people. If they were believers or not, we don't know. But he was afraid of them. And what this caused him to do was to behave in a certain way. I've got to perform in order to earn their acceptance and gain their approval. And so Peter, who knew full well that in the gospel, he was free to sit with Gentiles. He was free to fellowship with Gentiles as brothers and sisters in Christ. He knew the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised and perform the, the law in order to be belong to the family of God. 
Peter knew all of that. He believed it in his heart, really. But he fell back into performance mentality. He, he, he was afraid that if he did not behave in a particular way, he wouldn't be accepted. And the result was he communicated with his actions that you had to perform to be right with God. That the result was he communicated to the Gentiles, hey, if you want to be a part of this group, if you want to belong to God, hey, you got to do all this other stuff. Faith in Christ isn't enough. And there were other Jews, including Barnabas, that behaved the same way. Performance mentality that had crept in. Look, we are so driven by performance. It's the air we breathe. It's next to our heart. But here's what God's word calls us to something far different. That the gospel calls us to live a life not driven by performance, but by faith. The gospel calls us to a radically different lifestyle, driven by a radically different agenda. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in the book of Galatians. That's what he is driving home to these believers, is that you aren't living your life based on performance, but by faith. And he was concerned that they would move out of this performance mentality and into a life of faith. How do we do that? How do we move from that propensity to be driven by performance, whether it be with God or with other people, How do we move out of that when we're so prone and actually live a life of faith and freedom in the gospel? Well, I want to look at two things briefly from our passage this morning. The first is that we properly understand the gospel. That might go without saying, but it is the place we always have to start. And then second, properly, how to properly live from the gospel. So we believe the gospel properly, we understand it properly, but then we, what does it mean to live from the gospel? So from the end of chapter one through chapter two, as we've seen the past couple weeks, Paul has used his own story as a way to refute false teaching. He was saying, hey, let me, let me show you why this false teaching is wrong just from my story, just from the things that have happened to me. And then his So the the biographical information in this letter culminates in his confrontation with Peter. Then verses 15 through 21 are sort of a transition within the letter. He's transitioning from the biographical information to formal teaching. And here's what 15 through 21 are doing. One, summarizing essentially the argument Paul has been making. Hey, if you want to understand all this biographical information I just gave you, what's the point? Verses 15 through 21. But he's also condensing what he's about to unpack in verses three through four, or excuse me, chapters three and four. So 15 through 21 serve as a transition. So here's what I want to do for us this morning in in hitting these two main points. I want to sort of trace the contours of really where we're going to go the rest of the book. I want to I lay down some important ideas that we're going to return to week after week after week after week because I want to start laying the foundation now and planting those seeds now so we start wrestling these things out in our soul. So all that we're going to hear from the rest of the book is really packed into these verses. And Paul starts, he, he starts bit by bit tearing down the notion of performance by first reminding us of the gospel. Verses 15 through 16. 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's what Paul's point is. He's getting at this idea of justified. And in some of your translations, you might see the word righteous. Both of these words kind of get at it. The the, the word in the Greek is notoriously difficult to translate because it's so multifaceted. Not one word in the English really captures all of the nuance and layers. So sometimes you'll see justified, sometimes you'll see righteous. And this idea is being right before God. So being innocent of any wrongdoing So it's sort of in a judicial sense. I'm not guilty. But it also means standing in a place that I'm actually morally superior. Now, superior, I use that term superior, not in like I'm better than somebody, but that I'm actually righteous. I'm not a sinner. I'm not condemned. But that my moral state is actually one. God looks at me and says, oh, that's a righteous person. How is that possible? How do we achieve that place where we're not guilty before God, and when God looks at us, he also sees us as righteous? Well, it's not through the works of the law. It's not through performance. And and here's how Paul is getting at this point. He's saying, hey, we who are Jews by birth, so he's sort of including like everybody he's been talking about, so himself and Barnabas and Peter and all these Jewish Christians, like we who have the law, We're not like Gentile sinners, and that was an expression to talk about people who were outside the Jewish faith. Like, they didn't follow the law, so they were just seen as sinners. He's saying, look, whether it be Jews who have the law or Gentile sinners, we're all in the same boat. Like, there's no exception made for the Jews who have the law. They're not made righteous one way and the Gentiles made righteous the other way. Hey, look, we're all in the same boat. It's through faith. Why is this point important for Paul? Why is he hammering home this contrast between Jew and Gentile and righteousness? Well, I want to go back to that worth legalism definition. You see, within Judaism at the time, this this was the predominant teaching about how someone was righteous. You keep the law in order to be found righteous by God who will bestow the grace, the gift of salvation. If you keep the law well enough you will be worthy of salvation. So if you want to be worthy of salvation, you have to keep the law. If you don't keep the law, you'll never be worthy enough. So it wasn't this strict transactional, hey, I I do enough good works and then God is going to pay me a wage. It's how do I live my life in such a way where God will deem me worthy? This takes on, this, this gives Paul's Uh, statement more force because here's what he's saying. He's like, look, you can't make yourself worthy. It's impossible to make yourself worthy. You think the Gentile sinners are unworthy? You're no different. Jewish Christian, Jewish man, woman. You cannot be righteous. You cannot be found worthy of salvation by doing good. This is utterly, 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 utterly against the idea of performance. Because I think sometimes we think this, God saved me because, well, there was something in me that he saw I had potential, or or maybe there was something in me that he saw in my future that, hey, that's why he saved me. 
So we start looking inside ourselves to find some explanation as to why God would save us, why God would give us grace. Or we start doing that with other people, like, oh, that person, yeah, they deserve grace. But what Paul is saying is, no, nobody deserves it. It's impossible for us to ever be worthy of this. Your performance, no matter how great, and remember, Paul said, hey, I was the best of the best. I was, I was exceeding people my own age. I was advancing faster than most people. Nobody was better at following the law than the Apostle Paul. But no matter how good you think you are, no matter how worthy you may think you are, you're not. You're not. To, to, to think that salvation happens that way is to miss the problem. It's to underestimate the nature of sin. It's to underestimate the nature of the problem. Look, we're not spiritually sick people who just need some medicine and just need some crutches to help us get better. We're spiritually dead people who need to be resurrected. We're completely dead in our sins. And so no amount of effort is going to clean us up enough to make us worthy of salvation. No, we're dead in our sin Sin has completely and utterly ruined us. We need new life. We don't need a better program. We don't need better ethics. We need transformation. We need renewal. We need new creation. And as Paul says, the law can't do that. As he's going, on, he's going to say in chapters three and four, the law isn't designed to do that. And so for you to look to the law for your justification, for you to look for the, to the law or performance to make you worthy of something, it will never do that. No, we need something else. And so Paul points to faith in Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus Christ so important here? Why is faith in Christ the game changer? Because what Jesus Christ did was the only solution to the problem. It was the only means by which salvation was going to happen. And this is the good news of the gospel for you and I, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, stepped from heaven and put on our humanity, and he stepped into our mess and our sin and our dysfunction, and he loved us. And he brought the kingdom of God, a kingdom of peace and righteousness and forgiveness and, and goodness and peace, and he healed people, and he cast out demons, and he confronted wicked rulers and oppressive religious systems. And he taught us about the kingdom of God, that God is good, that, that righteousness is found in him. And here's the thing. Jesus perfectly kept the law. He perfectly obeyed his father. He perfectly obeyed righteousness. Never sinned in thought, word, deed, desire. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he not only models for us what it means to, to walk in godliness, he, 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 he takes on our mess. Like he, he steps into the disease and the wickedness and the dysfunction and the conflict. And he loves us. He cares for us. He weeps with us. He heals us. He sets us free. And then as an ultimate act of love, he willfully goes to the cross to be crucified for our sin that the wrath of God that should be poured out on you and me is poured out on him. Look, 
What Jesus did is an ocean, ocean of goodness and righteousness and merit. And for you and I to think we can take our little cup of water and throw it in the ocean and go, look what I did. It's ridiculous, right? This is what Paul is getting at. It would be ridiculous to think that the works of the law could ever account for the righteousness that we need, the salvation that we need. See, Jesus radically altered everything, changed everything, upset the entire order. He threw performance on its head. He smashed the wicked powers that enslaved us. Paul points to faith in Christ because it is the only solution. It is a radically transformative event. Nothing else will suffice. In light of what Jesus has done, think of this, in light of what Jesus has done, if he has done all of that, if he is indeed the living son of God who was crucified for sinners, now resurrected and reigning, why would you and I play around with our own works? Why would we play around trying to be worthy through our own efforts when Christ has done it all? That's the good news of the gospel. That's intended to get you to let go of your performance and find freedom. From beginning to end, it is the grace of God. Jesus did all of that, not because you and I were worth it. We weren't. We were the last people on the face of the earth that was worth it. We weren't the teenager who was responsible that the parent is going, hey, you know, yeah, you're not perfect, but you're good enough, and so, so I'm going to give you this gift. No, we were the reckless, irresponsible teenager that wraps the car around the pole. And if that seems a little scandalous to you, good. Because grace is scandalous. The gospel is scandalous. It's meant to stir us and cause us to question this whole notion of performance and reward. No, Jesus' grace is radical. Our performance means nothing for our righteousness. And we will never move away from performance until we embrace the radical, upside-down, counterintuitive gift of God to us in Jesus Christ. So we start with properly understanding the gospel. Now, what does it mean to properly live from the gospel? We, we need to be careful, otherwise we fall into the same trap Peter did if we're not letting the truth of the gospel and faith in Christ govern how we live. And so an objection comes. Here's an objection to Paul's assertion that only faith in Christ is the way that we're righteous. This is verses, in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So here's the objection. If you're telling me that my performance and my good deeds don't make me righteous, and it's faith in Christ, free gift of grace, then, then that means that my works don't matter. That means I can do whatever I want, and that makes Christ a servant of sin. Right? Well, one, it's a fair question to some degree, but it also utterly misunderstands the gospel. And, and Paul was regularly facing this charge. You read in the book of Romans, the same thing. They thought that this, this message of free grace, righteousness in Christ through faith alone, meant, hey, what I do doesn't matter. But Paul is going to actually flip that on its head. He, he resoundingly says, certainly not. Christ is not a servant of sin. 
but just for a second here, I want the Christians in the room to stop and ask themselves this question. How often do you throw up rules for yourself and for other people out of fear? Because here, here's the thing. The, the objection in some ways came out of fear. Like you're telling me righteousness doesn't matter, Paul? You're telling me that, that how I live doesn't matter anymore? Then, then what, what does that even mean? What does righteousness even mean? And so when we hear that we're not righteous by our works, and it is all of grace, and that we're not saved by what we do, the fear can come in. Well, doesn't, aren't people going to misinterpret what that means? Aren't they going to think that a Christian can do whatever they want? And we hear people abuse grace all the time, don't we? We hear of people who say, yeah, I follow Jesus, and they live in a way that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And so what do we do to sort of mitigate the misunderstanding or or to sort of mitigate the fear? We start making rules. We start saying, hey, this is what a Christian does and what a Christian doesn't. This is what it really means to follow Christ. And look, do we want to avoid sin and walk in a godly way? Absolutely. But what drives us to do that? Fear? or faith in Jesus. Look, church, we have to be honest about the ways that the rules that we follow, the rules that we impose, the rules that we expect have nothing to do with faith in Jesus and everything to do with fear. Are you willing to question? Are are you willing to wrestle with that? Ask, grapple. Faith in Christ doesn't promote sin. In fact, the opposite is true, as verse 18 tells us. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here, Paul is getting super clever, and he's undoing this notion entirely that we can earn righteousness through our works. Here's his point. Look, if I try to rebuild the law, if I tear down and say, hey, righteousness doesn't come through my performance, but then all of a sudden I turn around and say, oh, well, no, actually it does, I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner for two reasons. One, it's wrong to do that, and I've just completely undermined the gospel. But two, when I start throwing rules up in front of people, guess what I do? Do I help them walk in righteousness? No. All I do is I make them aware of how terrible they are. When I start throwing up rules, here's what I do. I show myself I can't keep them then I'm actually not very good at performing, at least not perfectly. Or or here's what we do. We like to play this little game. Um, I know I can't keep them perfectly, so I'll start cherry-picking which ones I'm going to actually do. And and then I'll start sort of lowering my standard bit by bit by bit by bit by bit to make myself feel good. Hey, guess what? That's not righteousness because you actually aren't meeting the standard. So we throw up rules but all we end up doing is intensifying our sin. We, we make ourselves more aware of how we fail. And then, we're, then we start to play these games and we just become more and more of a sinner, more and more imperfect. If I rebuild this notion that righteousness is through the law and through works, I'm not saving myself. I'm not making myself more worthy. I'm making myself less worthy. And if our hope is, hey, God is just kind, and he'll overlook those things, guess what we do then? 
We say, God, I don't want you to be as just as you are. I don't want you to be as good as you are. I don't want you to be as righteous and holy as you are. And we start bringing God down to our level. So throwing up laws and rules does not make us righteous. It makes us sinners. And so Paul's point is moving from a life of performance to a life of faith means we need to recognize the proper role of the law. And he's going to spend multiple verses in chapter three and four explaining the purpose of the law, which is not to make us righteous. It's to point us to the need for a savior. It's to point us to the need, hey, we need Christ. The salvation has to be by faith because if it isn't, we're in trouble. Verse 19, Paul says this, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It isn't the law that made him righteous. No, it was the law, through the law, he died to the law so he could live to God. His point here is living for the law, living for performance, isn't living for God. You may think it is, but it actually isn't. You have to die to the law in order to live to God. You have to die to performance in order to live for God. Because the law shows us we're sinners. The the law is meant to bring us to this place where we recognize we can't keep it, that, that, that we are actually unrighteous and we need grace, we need mercy, we need forgiveness. What the law is intended to do is drive you away from performance to faith. If that is not what the law is doing, if the law, if you are using the law, if you are using rules, if you're using performance as a way to gain righteousness with God and with other people, you're misusing it. No, it is meant to show you you're helpless. You're unrighteous. You need a savior. You need the grace of God. And come and throw yourself totally and completely on his good mercy and his grace. So we move from performance to faith when we let the law drive us to Christ, drive us to dependence upon God for righteousness, drive us to find life. And this life is far from anything goes. It's not a righteousness doesn't matter, goodness doesn't matter. No, it just transforms the way you think about it. It completely transforms the way you think about approaching righteousness and godliness. Here's what Paul writes in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, this is beautiful. I live life by faith in the Son of God. Like, look, there's a difference between living by faith in the Son of God and living by rules. Are rules your master? Like, I know you you probably don't have, like, 10 rules to live by hanging on your fridge. But is that what you're following? Is that what's leading you? I have these principles that I live by and I try to live up to and try to keep them. Like, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. Again, another basketball illustration because we all, we all know I love basketball. Hey, if I want to learn basketball and I just look at the rules, what am I going to learn? What not to do and what to do. But am I going to really learn how to play basketball just by looking at the rules? No, I need somebody to actually teach me. I need to follow somebody. Imagine the difference between learning to play basketball by looking at the rules and learning from Michael Jordan. Like having Michael Jordan teach you how to play basketball, 
That's a whole other level of understanding how to do it. Following Christ takes you to an entirely different level of what it actually means to walk in godliness. Throwing up a bunch of rules is shallow. Following Jesus takes you right to the heart. Following Christ is entirely different than following a set of rules. We follow a person. We don't follow a list. We, our, our master is not a checklist that we have to check and keep up with. No, our master is a resurrected and reigning king who what? Loves us. He's not some crank in the sky hurling bolts down at us saying, you filthy sinners. He's not some puppet, up, puppet master up in the sky going, dance monkeys. No, he loves us. He gave himself for us. That's who we follow. Far different than performance. Far different than the law. Look, a list of rules is about me checking a box, meeting a standard. And look, you can push Christ into a corner when you do that. But following Jesus, it's about love, as Paul will tell us. It's about love for God and love for others. It's about freedom. It's about having your entire identity transformed. It's about being completely set free from sin. As he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Like that is a reference to dying to sin. Just as Christ died to sin and was raised to new life, as Romans 6 tells us. We die to sin. Look, the power of sin has been broken in you if you are in Jesus. That isn't broken through keeping a list of rules. That is broken through the power of his spirit. And so, yes, we take sin very seriously. But look, its power has been broken. We've been transformed. We've been made new. We move away from sin because we're new people. We move away from sin because we're following Jesus. And so this life that we live has been utterly transformed. We've been called to an ethic for sure. But it's not about achieving righteousness or performing to get blessed. It's about following the Son of God who loved us, who gave himself for us, who sets us free, and whose power lives within us. I've been crucified with Christ. I've died Yet, the life I live, I live with his power. It's actually not me and my old self and my ability that's now energizing my efforts. No, it's his life that is in me. Like, here, here, here think of this analogy again. You know, you can learn basketball from Michael Jordan, but can you imagine Michael Jordan kind of like injecting his ability into you? That's a whole other level. That that's what Jesus does. He doesn't just say, hey, here, follow me. This, let me show you a better way to live. Let me show you how to love. No, he actually gives us his spirit, his power, so that we can do that. Again, not by keeping a list of rules, but by trusting in faith. That's how we live now. We live by the very power of Christ, not our own performance. And so church, here's what we need to understand Christ didn't die for us so that we could just be forgiven, so that our bank account can be zero, and then he turns and sets us on our way and says, hey, do better. No. It's far, far, far greater. I'm afraid that functionally too often, though, that's how we live. God gave me the zero in my bank account. Now he tells me to go try and do better. Don't mess up. And yeah, there's, there's some forgiveness when you mess up, but, but just go and do your best. 
No, the, the life that Paul, the Apostle Paul is holding out for us is a life entirely transformed, wrapped up, motivated by Jesus. It's far different. And so I'm excited for these next several weeks because as we unpack this, I'm excited to go deeper into it. I'm excited to consider the ways God wants to set us free from a performance mentality, not so that we take sin less, make it less important, but that we actually grow in deeper righteousness, deeper faith, deeper freedom. The, the life of faith, as we're going to see in chapter 5, leads to freedom. The life of faith, as we're going to see in chapter 5, is produced by the Spirit, and the fruits of the Spirit come out of us. And that, that, that sin that once lived in us starts to die. The life of faith is a great, glorious thing, church. But in order for us to move from performance to faith, we need to properly understand the gospel. And we need to properly live from the gospel.